good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. If you're viewing in person, we'll hand that out to you afterwards. If you're viewing online, I'll list the link into the chat section. And if you're viewing after the fact, you can find the survey evaluation link in the description section of the video. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Janine Walker, who is our Director of Faculty Development and Educational Outcomes. Dr. Walker. Thank you for that, Jennifer, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us for our series. Uh, so far, our DEA series has covered different aspects of care from the emergency department to critical care to obstetrics for our patients experiencing substance use disorder and opioid use disorder. Um, we've examined the pharmacokinetics, signs and symptoms of withdrawals for patients. Um, the series is also focused on the stigma that occurs simply with the language healthcare professionals use surrounding patients with opioid uh, use disorder. But today, we will continue our discussion on legal ethical issues, and we are joined by an awesome uh, group of panelists today. But before we have our panelists uh, introduce themselves, we want to actually have Dr. Youssef introduce himself, tell us about his role, but most importantly, why he wanted to close out uh, this series from a legal ethical uh, standpoint. Dr. Youssef? Thank you, Dr. Walker. Uh, really appreciate that introduction. As you all know, because of the regulatory requirement, all pre prescribers have to have those eight hours of uh, opioid uh, prescription education. So we form a team when we have been working to get modules that are easily available to physicians and APPs who need this education. And the requirement is for eight hours, but we decided to give to go above and beyond and have 10 hours of those educations. So far, like any other uh, academic um, uh, CME course, we covered medical medications for substance use disorders, the toxicology, and the emergency handling of opioids. We have handled and discussed the changing the bias in training substance use disorders. We talked about uh, substance use and alcohol withdrawal syndromes. And then pain management pharmacokinetics, its aspect on maternal health and pregnancy. And then we covered also opioid and critical care. Uh, further, we covered some recovery models and sm smart prescribing of opioids and dealt in detail about the pharmacology and the safety of opioids. And then finally, this is not common in a lot of the CME courses, we wanted to give the audience, i.e. the physicians and the APPs and the residents, some ideas, what are the impact of opioid prescription when it comes to ethical, legal, or compliance and regulatory aspect of it. We wanted to close it with that. And we assembled this wonderful panel to give that perspective in addition to the pharmacology and the usual clinical course. So with that, I would like to ask all our panel members to please introduce themselves and then we go into the discussion session. Thank you. Hello, um, my name is Helen Ransom. I am the clinical ethicist for the system. 
Hello, my name is Cass Lawson, and I am Associate Counsel here at Northeast Georgia Health System. Hi, I'm Steve Kelly. I'm the Chief Compliance and Privacy Officer for the Health System. Thanks. Thank you. So let's start with the first question for Helen uh, related to the ethics aspect. So my question or our question to you is, what are, what are some of the ethical patient care issues that physicians should be aware of in treating patients with opioid use or substance use disorder? Thank you. Okay. Um, I, guess, I guess starting out, the biggest ethical issue would be that of autonomy. And that is people having the right to make decisions, even if those decisions aren't seen as being, um, say, great or well thought out. Um, people have the ability or can have the ability to make what is viewed as poor decisions. And that is creates a bit of a foundation for another clash, and that's the clash of seemingly different best interests. So the best interest that the medical team, that the provider, that the physician may see as, okay, we're looking out for your medical best interest, and the patient is looking through the lens of their personal well-being, even if it is connected to, say, substance use. Um, but those are things that can potentially clash. Um, another big one would be the application of justice. And that is, how are physicians treating each patient? Are they treating each patient who has an opiate use or substance use disorder the same or as similar as they can? Uh, that is something that um, you have to be mindful about because you get into this whole issue of discernment and professionalism um, because you want to give patients you know, grace and respect, but also how do you get them to be um, seen as active stakeholders in the treatment plan. So you want to make sure that you're being consistent, um, especially in looking at each patient. And if you're treating certain patient populations differently, that's where there needs to be further examination. Thank you for that. And Dr. Ransom, can you continue our, for our next question? Can you share any ethical cases um, that you're aware of uh, surrounding substance use disorder, opioid use disorder? When I got this question, I was trying to think of maybe an individual case, but decided to settle on not just a case, but this is an overall, uh, I guess, conversation that has come up um, repeatedly. And that is the issue of patients with opiate use disorders, uh, more histories, being discharged with IV pick lines, um, and whether or not, um, as far as the continuation of IV antibiotics, you get into this whole conversation of oral versus IV, which one is better. Um, I know that there may be some controversy uh, with this statement, whereas there, the efficacy is seen as the same, at least from the reports that I have. And now I'll turn to you, Dr. Yusuf, if, if anything is differently. Um, but it really kind of goes into, I guess, a physician's preference. Uh, physicians prefer to have IV, especially if this is something that the patient has come in with and they say they have tried an oral uh, antibiotic for a while and it hasn't been working, so IV is seen as the next best uh, step. 
but there is a lot of conversation surrounding do we discharge or can we discharge this patient with the IV pick line? Um, it does get into this conflict of paternalism and how long do we keep the patients here? Do we keep all patients here? Uh, so it's not just, when I think about that question as far as what cases, I think that is probably the biggest issue. Something else that comes up, um, it's a bit of the flip of this conversation, and it is relating to our patient populations uh, who have sickle cell. And that is kind of the perceived aspect of persons coming in seeking uh, opiates or pain seeker, uh, pain medication seekers, you know, so wanting to be kind of mindful that, yes, we have kind of, it's like two big buckets when it comes to these types of cases for me, as far as observing what I've seen in the hospital system so far, and that is the issue of IV pick lines and then also the issue of perceptions and some of the biases that come into play with our patients who are perceived as being you know, seeking pain medication. Thank you for that, Helen. Uh, that's a great point, actually, when it comes to sending patients with midline or pickline home. We had this ethical, sometimes clinical dilemma when patients come with endocarditis or some chronic illness, osteomyelitis, they need four to six weeks of IV antibiotic therapy, but they have this strong history of... Uh, opioid or other substance abuse disorders. And our organization, especially our outpatient IV, uh, the outpatient treatment team was very creative with that. They had this uh, pick line that has a red cap, which is like a temper resistant or temper aware, if you will, because the patient still can break it, but you would know that chain of cycle is broken. Uh, some patients, we had to keep them in the hospital unnecessarily for many, many weeks uh, because we know they will be abusing drugs and then it will defeat the purpose of what we are trying to do. So the reason why we are having this kind of panel, and it is a nice segue now to go into the medical legal part, is we have been dealing not only with the ethical, also with the medical legal situation. And the current medical legal situation, as you all know, is not favorable in the state of Georgia. Georgia got this infamous ranking now to be the number one hellhole state in 2023 uh, for the highest number of verdicts and medical legal issues. So Cass, this is a, a nice segue if I may ask, uh, what is the medical legal implication related to opioid practice in your opinion? Yeah, so most of the implications uh, relate to just the harsh consequences when providers do not actually follow the applicable laws. Example of those would be consequences involving criminal charges for Medicaid fraud, uh, charges for abuse and neglect of the elderly population, and of course those would um, include having to pay restitution. Um, there's also consequences that involve civil penalties for Medicaid fraud um, under the False Claims Act. Uh, sometimes you can have a complaint to the Georgia Composite Medical Board 
which that would result or may actually result in revoking a provider's license or even placing restrictions on prescribing opioids or other dangerous drugs. Uh, most of these consequences, though, um, are found when providers are prescribing controlled substances without a legitimate medical reason or when it is deemed medically unnecessary to prescribe those controlled substances. Also, the consequences um, can be associated when the prescribers are actually not using the PDMP database or when they do not actually have sufficient documentation to document their legitimate medical reason for needing to prescribe these controlled substances. Thank you for sharing that, Cass. Are there uh, specific federal or state laws that our physicians and APPs need to be aware of when it comes to safe controlled substance prescription practice? Sure. There are um, just a few uh, state laws that I would like to point out. Um, the main Georgia law when it comes to writing prescriptions is OCGA 16-13-41. Um, and that basically states that when you write a prescription, you must include the name and address of the patient. Um, please note that office use only prescriptions are not valid. Uh, the kind and quantity of such controlled substance and the directions for taking the uh, controlled substance. You must also sign including your name, address, telephone number, and the DEA registration number. Uh, I think it's very important to note that these cannot be post-dated. Prescriptions, these prescriptions cannot be post-dated. Um, and you may not write a prescription for your own personal use or for immediate family members. There's also a Georgia regulation on this, 360-3-.06, uh, on the topic of pain management. So that regulation actually sets out some minimum standards for providers, which include uh, the need for a, one, medical history to be done, two, a physical examination to be done, and three, informed consent um, to be provided by the patient before prescribing any type of controlled substances. Now, of course, in the case of emergency, a, uh, a physician can prescribe a controlled substance, um, but only to last 72 hours without a physical examination. Um, providers should also take best efforts to actually obtain all of the patient's prior diagnostic records or prior pain uh, treatment records for the patient and should document those efforts into the medical chart before prescribing any type of controlled substances for the first time for a patient. Um, if there are no diagnostic records, the provider should order appropriate tests to make sure um, that a prescription for controlled substances is appropriate. Um, prescriptions for controlled substances um, that will last 90 days or more Providers should actually have a written treatment plan with the patient and should require that patient to have clinical visits every three months so that the provider can, one, evaluate the patient's response to the treatment, two, evaluate the patient's compliance with the treatment, and three, evaluating any new conditions that the patient may have now had that are masked by the use of the controlled substances. And all of this should be documented in the patient's medical record. Um, lastly, patients, this regulation says that patients should also be randomly monitored for um, their compliance with um, the treatment plan at least annually. Can I, pardon me, can I add on to that? 
So uh, one of the things that Cassie alluded to that uh, providers might need to, to be aware of is increasingly uh, there is use of the False Claims Act uh, to enforce uh, hospitals and, and prescribers who are not prescribing uh, opioids in a medically a well-documented medical necessity case for prescribing opioids. Typically, uh, how the government operates, or at least the federal government, is you know we have an underlying or primary regulatory structure. Uh, for example, the Controlled Substances Act, uh, Cass mentioned Georgia uh, state law. But typically what happens is in order to uh, fully incentivize providers and physicians uh, to follow those primary laws, uh, the big stick approach of the federal government uh, almost always graduates to using the False Claims Act. Uh, to challenge pres uh, physicians and health systems who have been prescribing too many opioids. And, and, and the, the penalties under that regulatory structure are, are truly draconian uh, and, and typically lead into the uh, millions, millions of dollars. We've also, uh, since the kind of increasing appreciation for this crisis, uh, at least with the federal government over the last few years, I think it was in 2018 that the Support Act was passed by Congress. And as part of that, uh, they also created an additional kickback uh, statute for uh, kickbacks in recovery uh, activities, recovery home activities, which basically uh, takes uh, kickback-like prohibitions and puts them specifically in the context of providers who receive any sort of remuneration uh, in exchange for uh, referring patients to a treatment facility. So that's uh, something that uh, should be monitored by the, by the provider. On top of that, the federal government, uh, in addition to the False Claims Act, will also use other traditional uh, laws uh, to enforce against providers. The anti-kickback, the main anti-kickback statute uh, comes to mind as one uh, area. Uh, recent settlement involving a uh, pharmaceutical company who is paying doctors as part of uh, speaker programs, which has become fairly typical uh, uh, for those programs to exist, but increasingly the, the federal government is extremely suspicious of those programs and, and any sort of relationships that physicians might have uh, with uh, a farm manufacturer or distributor, uh, particularly uh, to the extent that they're manufacturing opioids, could uh, become under increasing scrutiny. Uh, these relationships are uh, mandatorily reported. Any sort of financial relationship with a pharma company is, uh, results in mandatory reporting to the CMS open payments database. And, and so patients, the community, and, and uh, the federal government certainly can see uh, the types of consulting and other sorts of financial relationships with you have with physicians that they have with physicians. So that's something to monitor to make sure that uh, you're not uh, necessarily uh, sticking out like a sore thumb in that data. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I, I really do appreciate the partnership we had when it comes to this discussion because we have a lot of providers who are approached by drug companies, uh, device companies, either speaker bureau or consultant and all that. 
and that is in a high scrutiny right now and, and reported and publicly reported. So uh, I do appreciate you for mentioning that. So this is a nice, again, segue. Uh, this is why I like this forum because uh, the ethical, the legal and compliance issues are very much related. So since CAS already went over the federal regulations and you alluded to the whole regulatory aspect and what our compliance risk would be, what, would you go over our healthcare systems, NGHS approach um, to, when it comes to dependent, opioid dependence, opioid misuse, substance misuse, all this monitoring program, what can you provide us in terms of information specifically about our system? Thank you. Sure, this, this is a, a, an interesting uh, topic as it's, uh, uh, to be frank, uh, Dr. Youssef, probably for the first 17, 18 years of my compliance career, uh, this wasn't necessarily on my radar at all. Normally, uh, my my meat and potatoes work is centered around billing and relationships with physicians, uh, et cetera, HIPAA. Uh, and only within the past couple of years when there's been uh, really quite a bit of uh, cooperative enforcement amongst all the three-letter agencies of the federal government have, have I started to become uh, more concerned about this, uh, particularly given where we are in the country, uh, uh, in the lower parts of the Appalachian, which where we all know there's a huge opioid uh, epidemic. And so uh, as part of our program and discovery of what has existed for us over the last couple of years, uh, one, we, we had uh, Deloitte conduct a uh, outside audit on how we, at least in the hospital system, how we're uh, managing to control uh, the risk of diversion. There's probably two major risks uh, in, in this realm, from my, my point of view, that uh, needs active management. One, diversion of controlled substances from our pharmacies, uh, even from our pa patients' bedside, uh, and, and more uh, directly appropriate to physicians in their practice setting uh, is where you see the risks of uh, over-prescribing over and, and p the concern about pill mill. So on the hospital side, we do have, what, I, what I've found is we do have policies and procedures and technical and physical uh, uh, security controls to prevent diversion. Uh, and then similarly, on the, on the physician practice side, uh, what I've seen uh, primarily through the leadership of Daniel and you, Dr. Uh, Bed, uh, Dr. Youssef, but also the I think the primary champion, Alex Schnibben, has done a great job of uh, setting up uh, appropriate monitoring of how our physicians uh, in our facilities are managing uh, uh, managing their uh, prescription rates, et cetera, and, and certainly pro providing this necessary education uh, to physicians. Uh, probably what I, I, I see where we need to improve as a health system is we, I think we have all the activities uh, of a compliance program in place for, for managing opioid uh, dependency and prescribing. Uh, though I don't know that we have a coordinated and centralized program in the health system around this particular risk. Uh, in the, as I mentioned, we've done audits on both sides, but what we don't see is a multi multidisciplinary uh, committee 
that's uh, you know, sharing what the left hand is doing and what the right hand in the system is doing between GHI and NGPG and what our hospitals and pharmacies are doing. Uh, and I think it's that kind of coordinated activity and communication. Uh, right now, it kind of feels like uh, it's somewhat perform the activities are performed in a, in a silo. And then beyond that, what we, we don't, I don't necessarily see from my chair anyway is uh, transparency to those activities uh, going all the way up to senior leadership in the board. Because I, I do think uh, with this crisis, the board now, the boards of our health systems have some responsibility to monitor uh, how we are uh, conducting ourselves in the, this space. I'm taking notes, by the way, because <laughs> this is incredibly enlightening because uh, thinking of silos within NGPG, we have, as you mentioned, a very robust uh, monitoring system. Uh, Dr. Alex Schneben, Dr. Audrey Hoff, and Jan Bennett within the quality department and the committee, they go over each physician's morphine equivalence and there is auditing process and there is dashboard and physician feedback. And if we trickle down this to GHI, uh, to the medical staff and create a system transparency, we can give periodic report to the board and we'll be doing above and beyond the best practice because a lot of organizations are behind. Uh, I haven't seen any best practice or so something that could be shared with other healthcare systems. Um, so going, do you want to go to the second question? Uh, you mentioned, you alluded to it a little bit, Steve, but can you expound a little bit more on how can NGHS improve its substance abuse and monitoring program? You gave us some tips a little bit, but is there anything else you want to expound on, on that thought, something else? Well, one, I don't know. There are pockets of our organization like myself and Dr. Youssef, uh, for example. We're on the front lines of, of this issue, though I suspect uh, this is not an issue that uh, is, rises to the top of people's list of priorities in terms of our leaders uh, running the health system and, and managing our risks. So uh, part and parcel of that, I think, is the activities that we are doing uh, one, making sure that we have an audit audit program and a monitoring program around those activities and the policies that we have in place uh, to, to let leadership know, be able to report to leadership. This is uh, these are the, the controls that we have in place and this is how we test our controls. Uh, and here's our strengths and our weaknesses with respect to those controls. And then to the extent that we have any, uh, you know, specific incidents, whether it's through our hotline where I, you know, I will from time to time get calls about an impaired provider or, or a diversion issue. Uh, these things, I, I don't find, I think they're managed primarily in a silo without any central connections of NGPEG activities to hospital activities. And maybe, maybe they don't necessarily need to touch, but I, I think that coordination and being able to provide that transparency to leadership and the board as to what we're doing uh, it would be good uh, good steps to take in terms of developing a more formal compliance program around these issues. So my job is to make sure we're we have a balanced approach when it comes to the ethical, legal, and compliance. Uh, Not only issue. compliance matters, doctor. <laughs> doctor I know. 
and you make it really fun. So I give you credit for that. But there is also the ethical balance. So I want to take it back to Helen again. And uh, there are a lot of physicians now waiting to hear from us when it comes to opioid prescription, you know, the patient satisfaction issue and patient complaints. And then, of course, balancing was what you already said. So what's your recommendation when it comes to our providers addressing chronic pain uh, management and balancing this misuse issue from, from ethical point of view? I'll save my comments. I was about to say something uh, as far as only compliance matters. But, <laughs> but building on something that you did say, and that's the whole aspect of best practice. So what, you know, under having a clear understanding of what our best practice is and operating within that, within those realms, I think it's important. Um, you also said something else too, and that's the whole aspect of transparency and making sure that, you know, our physicians are aware of, you know, as far as the training that is um, provided or the training opportunities in order to, you know, to build, like if they feel that they're not comfortable prescribing opiates, like, okay, well, what training is available so that they can maybe gain confidence and information in order to better um, write prescriptions to manage the pain of, you know, patients coming in. The other aspect of that is if they feel that, okay, what other alternative, you know, means of addressing pain management, you know, do I need to be uh, made aware of or become more educated about, you know, as far as physical therapy, other aspects of other different medications, um, you know, just really trying to, um, in some ways, maybe kind of put it back on a physician as far as, you know, gaining a sense of understanding, utilizing the processes and support systems that we have in place. Um, also, wanting to make sure that, you know, I guess going back to the element of communication between the physician and the patient, making sure that, okay, if there are concerns, having a clear plan and having, you know, an opportunity to be as transparent as possible uh, as far as what are the treatment goals, what are the expectations, and willing to be open to patients accepting or not accepting uh, some of that plan and being able to, in some ways, um, pivot and provide support for our patient population. Uh, something that I don't know a lot of physicians are aware of, and that is through the Georgia Council for Recovery, we have the PEERS program. And so this is a program or persons who have who have a history of opiate or substance use disorders, and they come in and talk to our patients and provide realistic, hands-on support for their recovery. So this is something, you know, that I don't think a lot of our physicians know about, but I do take opportunities to introduce it at IDT when appropriate. Um, but as far as, I think, like I said, it's a long list, say, of recommendations, but it really just comes down maybe to something kind of simple, and that is, one, the physician being aware of the different programs and things that are available within our health system to provide additional education and support. 
uh, other part of that would be the transparency of what's available for that education and support. And then also, most importantly, there is that whole communication piece. I know you mentioned Dr. Youssef as far as, you know, physicians feeling a little maybe pulled to write prescriptions for patient satisfaction. Um, something that, and I may get in trouble for, for saying this out loud, but something that we have to be aware of is that is this whole idea of customer service uh, within the realm of our physician practice. And that is something, I'm not saying, you know, uh, what is the old adage, the customer's always right. Um, that is something that, you know, I'm not trying to say that we need to go that route, please uh, don't. But the customer or our patients rather need to be involved in the conversation. So if there is something that is going on in your mind, sharing and being transparent, I think will probably get you a little bit further than you actually think that it will. And I think that leads uh, to my next question for you, Dr. Ransom. In your opinion, what are the ethical implications of restricting the prescription of controlled substances by physicians and APPs? Do you think that the pendulum is swinging backwards on this? Uh, getting me hit by tomatoes. Uh, so, <laughs> of course, I, I have a little, I have thoughts, uh, but I'm decided just to settle on the whole aspect of paternalism and how just connecting it to the IV pick line and the IV antibiotic uh, situation uh, that I described earlier, there are, I do see the concern, but keeping patients in the hospital inpatient for 10 to 14 days is that something that we're going to do for all patients? Um, we need to really take a look at the type of patients or looking at the patient populations for which we are constantly making the recommendation to say that, okay, they have to stay in the hospital or this patient can be discharged. Um, again, going back to that whole thing of, yes, I do think the pendulum is swinging, whereas it's going almost kind of back to that whole adage of physician, you know, being, say, seen as the captain of the ship or something to that effect. Uh, but wanting to be, I guess, kind of mindful of that. So if we are taking on this role of being very paternalistic in our approach, because of those concerns, then something that I often ask is what kind of parents are we going to be? You know, how accountable will we be for this type of restriction? So if we're going to say this, are we prepared for the, for lack of a better word, the consequences that come with those restrictions? If we're just going to say we're going to keep all patients in, are we prepared to have longer lengths of stay? Are we prepared to have insurance companies deny certain claims because they feel that why didn't we send the patient home? Um, so those are some of the opinions. Add into that a little bit. Uh, so in, in prepar preparing for this, uh, one of the things that I hadn't fully considered uh, previously is normally in compliance, we're worried always about the enforcement. What are the agencies doing? Uh, but as part of this, uh, I did notice there, there's been several documents put out by H H HHS and the Office for Civil Rights 
uh, around uh, ensuring equal access uh, to treatment and treatment facilities uh, and services uh, by people who may have uh, opiate use disorder, uh, which could be considered a disability under the ADA and the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. I made that number up. I don't know. Uh, so, so, so there's some there's some tension. I think uh, in the industry between trying to do the right thing and uh, with respect to our communities and patients with uh, curtailing inappropriate use of uh, opioids. By the same token, I can see uh, uh, Dr. Ransom, you mentioned potential uh, issues with socioeconomic determinants of health where uh, Providers, through their implicit bias, for example, could conceivably view one person as a drug seeker uh, and another uh, patient as a non-drug seeker, just simply based on those implicit biases. So I think those are things that need to be uh, considered, and it tempers our in instinct to curtail the drug use uh, by thinking of those socioeconomic determinants of health and uh, the, dis the discrimination laws in this country. Steve, uh, those are great points. Uh, I consider part of my responsibility as the physician executive for the medical group is taking care of the physicians and the providers who are taking care of patients. And the burnout, the pressure that comes from a lot of fronts, ethical dilemma, the medical legal pressure right now, which is so unprecedented in the state of Georgia. Then the compliance and the number of things we ask our providers. You have to provide efficient service, quickly see the patient. At the same time, keep them happy and then make sure the patient gives us the best rating and then don't give them opioids. I mean, the list goes on and on, and as new regulatory pressures come, that all goes to providers and then becomes makes practicing medicine very unattractive to a lot of people. So while we are on the legal uh, situation, which is in the mind of everybody's, yes, uh, based on, you know, the law is based on precedence, so based on existing legal precedents, uh, Cass, if what are the issues that our docs and APPs need to be aware of when it comes to the practice of controlled substance prescription? Yeah, so there, shockingly, um, there's actually little legal precedence on the issue of prescribing uh, controlled substances. I guess that can be good and bad in both ways. Um, the only legal precedence really out there or the case law out there surrounds the issues of either over-prescribing over or not prescribing for legitimate medical reasons. And how do we um, say that it's a, a legitimate medical reason, just like you were talking, uh, Dr. Ransom, about the conversations we have with these patients. So the conversations you have with these patients, you need to, if you document those conversations that you have with the patients, then it actually gives us more evidence of a legitimate medical reason for you to prescribe these controlled substances. Um, the most recent cases that I was able to find 
Um, you might recall hearing that back in 2021, a pharmacist um, uh, was allegedly uh, fill, filled prescriptions for what we call, quote unquote, a pill mill doctor, um, when the pharmacist actually knew or should have known that all these prescriptions were not being used for legitimate medical reasons. Um, that pharmacist agreed to pay $275,000. That doesn't seem like a lot when you're talking about millions, but you're talking about a settlement. This one actually didn't get to trial, didn't get to a verdict. Someone thought it was worth a lot more than that, and that's why um, they decided to settle for $275,000. Um, also in 2021, there was a Georgia health clinic that agreed to pay $130K to settle a false claims act whereby they were alleged to have issued medically unnecessary opioid prescriptions. Um, there is some hope for providers uh, when it comes to criminal charges. So in a recent, I know uh, Steve and I were just talking about this, in a recent case, Ruan versus the U.S., um, it stated that in order to be convicted of the federal crime, it's 21 U.S.C. 841, and that code section makes it a crime to accept as authorized, knowingly or intentionally manufacture, distribute, or dispense a controlled substance. So, um, but um, in order to be convicted of that, the government must actually prove that beyond a reasonable doubt that not only did the provider knowingly distribute that controlled substance, but they also knowingly acted in an unauthorized manner. Now, for legal nerds, that's really interesting, but I'm assuming y'all are not legal nerds. Um, and that basically means that the, a prescription for a controlled substance is only authorized when a doctor issues it for a legitimate medical purpose acting in the usual course of his professional practice. So it just raises the bar a little bit uh, for physicians to actually be prosecuted for a criminal federal charge. Thank you for sharing those cases, Cass. Uh, what are some legal concerns physicians, APPs, uh, should be aware of as it relates to substance use disorder and opioid use disorder for our patients? Yeah, so um, as you're probably aware, the X waiver program was eliminated back in 2022. Um, however, there may still be some concerns as it relates to prescribing certain medications for opioid use disorder. So some things to consider, um, and you'll probably hear me say this a lot, and I could probably steal the mic away from everyone who's talking and say, document this in the medical chart, document this in the medical chart. Um, so you'll hear me use the word document a lot. Um, that's just the lawyer coming out in me. Uh, some things to consider is to actually document and correctly diagnose an opioid use disorder. Um, you might also want to uh, refer the patient to a specialist in order to continue to monitor and counsel the patient throughout the treatment. Um, patients with opioid use disorder are already at a high risk for medication abuse, obviously. And um, the Georgia Composite Medical Board actually suggests using a written agreement between providers and patients, outlining the patient's responsibilities, and then checking on whether the patient is obtaining drugs from other physicians by using the PDMP database. Talking about documentation again, uh, that would be my final question for you, uh, Cass. What's best practice for documentation, really, when it comes specifically to this? So more documentation, the better. Um, but we need to be documenting all steps that are involved in this process. 
what you want to do, the end result of this, what you want to do is to make sure that there is enough documentation that shows that you are prescribing the controlled substance for legitimate medical reasons and that you are only prescribing these controlled substances when it is deemed medically necessary. But you have to do this on a continuing basis. You can't just do it the first time the patient walks in. Every single time you write that refill prescription, you're going to have to make sure that it is a continuing medically necessary to write that prescription. Um, The Georgia Composite Medical Board actually has some great guidance on this specific issue. They have like the top 10 tips. I definitely suggest y'all read through those. But um, they do mention that once you take that first medical history and perform a physical examination, you should actually document several things. The nature and intensity of the pain, current and past treatments of pain, underlying um, diseases or conditions, the effect of the pain on physical and psychological functions, and lastly, the history of substance abuse. There are other things that I have um, compiled that should be documented within the medical chart. First, you should document the presence of one or more recognized medical indications deeming that the use of the controlled substance is necessary. Um, Two, you need to document your performance of your sufficient workup on that patient to support a diagnosis that actually would include a treatment plan of prescribing a controlled substance. And of course, you will have to document that treatment plan. And with that treatment plan are your objections, um, objectives of that treatment plan. If you consider actually referring the patient to a specialist, make sure that you actually follow up and that the result of that referral is documented in the patient's chart. You also need to document how you decided um, that non-controlled substances were not actually appropriate in this situation. Now, I'm not saying this um, to limit the use of controlled substances because legally they can be used as a first line of therapy but the rationale for you to use it as the first line needs to be documented in the medical chart. Um, Documentation, of course, for prescription records. You've got to keep detailed records of the type, the dosage, and amount of drugs that you prescribed, and you should personally control all of the refills um, for that type of prescription. And again, conversations with the patient. Um, So all of the conversations you have with the patient discussing that risk-benefit analysis of prescribing and taking opioids, um, that should be documented in the chart that you had that conversation and what you'll talked about, what what the patient, you know, um, said or what their concerns were or, you know, and then, of course, the outcome of that conversation. And I know earlier I had mentioned that you have to have so many follow-up visits. Um, Those follow-up visits and the regular monitoring of that patient needs to be documented in the medical chart. Thank you so much. That was incredibly helpful. Uh, So we're saving compliance being the best for the last. So, uh, Steve... uh, you alluded a lot of things, so I consider the, the last two questions for me and from Dr. Walker as kind of summarizing in the eyes of our doctors and um, APPs. So what is your advice to providers when it comes to pressure from patients and families 
for controlled substance prescription? Well, uh, one, I, I do have to amend my earlier statement. After that explanation by Cass, uh, legal's apparently the most important and excellent. Excellent. I thought that was excellent. Uh, so, for admitting uh, that, uh, so, uh, yeah. Andre, will, Andre will be writing this. Yes, Remember right. that. He and, said and it. Perfor I didn't. Performance evals are coming up as well, so I wanted to yes. make that clear. Uh, I, I think one thing that I was thinking about uh, when, when Cass was giving her answer is uh, what about red flags that come up and uh, I you know uh, and if, if a provider is getting pressure uh, from a patient or a family member it, I think it would be unfair to call that necessarily a red flag because I don't know what the treatment history has been I don't know how much pain ha has the patient has been in what failed pain management techniques have there been but be that as it may, uh, at the end of the day, I probably would at least be on the lookout the, 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 for four red flags, and I think that would fall into that ballpark. And uh, go about uh, documenting all the things that Cass had mentioned. Uh, is, is there a clinically appropriate uh, reason for opioids? Has, has non-opioid alternative therapies been offered? Um, have you checked the PDMP database and documented that you've done that in the record as well as uh, seeking out uh, the records from the patient's past and other treatment providers to see what the history is? I mean, at the end of the day, I, I think there is still, uh, if a provider feels uncomfortable, uh, I don't think the provider is obligated uh, by any stretch to pre prescribe uh, opioids. Uh, one other uh, things that I might suggest would be to uh, have a, a second physician or healthcare provider review the record to see if they think uh, pain uh, opioid pain management is appropriate, or referring referring the patient to a uh, pain specialist. I think would probably, at the end of the day, uh, be the most ideal uh, situation. So, Steve, I'm saving my favorite question for you for the last one, and it's, what are the possible compliance risks for providers, medical groups, and healthcare systems when it comes to controlled substance prescription management? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, under the Controlled Substances Act and under the Georgia laws around the PDMP program, uh, certainly a provider could, uh, if, they, if they fail to follow those uh, medical best practices, uh, I think they could be reported to their state and the Georgia College. Uh, uh, they could potentially use lose their DEA uh, number. I've seen that uh, happen a couple of times over my career uh, where providers have lost their DEA number. Uh, I've seen, uh, depending on uh, how uh, frequent and egregious a particular case has been, I've, uh, I've seen enforcement where... Uh, Patients have sued individual providers. Uh, there's been crimes potentially for involuntary manslaughter if they have not uh, if they have not gone through the proper check, followed institutional policies and procedures and controls and prescribed based on uh, legitimate medical need. Some providers have been uh, brought up on charges of involuntary manslaughter. And, and now, as I mentioned previously. 
the federal government, in addition to these inf uh, existing enforcement tools, are starting to rely more heavily on the False Claims Act. And because this is such a epidemic and crisis in our country, that is almost surefire clue that uh, there will be all these agencies will be auditing. Uh, they the government's gotten really great uh, and has far surpassed health systems' ability to mine their own data. So the, the enforcement authorities know our data better than we do. Uh, so I think provider, you know, being familiar, the, the, the clinics uh, being transparent with the providers about what their utilization data says, and we can provide that to them will be helpful. Uh, but uh, certainly from a provider standpoint, uh, more and more I've seen uh, national enforcement initiatives uh, focusing on the physician where physicians have been fined or even gone to jail uh, because of uh, running a pill mill operation. I think if you follow the policies that we have uh, set up and, uh, and document, uh, document well in the medical record, I, I wouldn't go away from this being terrified that any of these things are going to happen. The, the types of enforcement I've seen have been in extreme and in, in egregious circumstances. Uh, but be that as it may, where we, are con where we live geographically, we need to be concerned that we are running uh, with all the clinics that we have. Uh, how are we managing our prescribing? Are we within normal ranges? And, and to proactively uh, address providers through education and auditing providers who may be sticking out as outliers in our data. I think if we do those things, I wouldn't worry ter ter terribly much about it, to be frank. Thank you. Um, first of all, I would like to thank uh, Dr. Ransom, Cass, and Steve for this wonderful presentation. I've learned a lot, and as you saw, I was diligently taking notes because uh, our work uh, there is a lot of work remaining, so I would like to make sure, Jennifer, is there any online question or anything? No, sir, no online questions. So, an instruction for everybody, and I'll give Dr. Walker the last word to thank her staff, and that was awesome. I mean, we have spent, uh, this is almost 10 hours on this specific topic, so this will be the conclusion. My advice to all uh, prescribers, doctors, and APPs would be uh, to please uh, print and save the evidence of their CME. That way, when they renew their DEA requirement, uh, you have something to show because there is, theoretically, you can be audited like anything else and you will not be able to renew your DEA uh, license. So I would like to advise that there are QR codes, the link is everywhere and we uh, we kept sending this also through the medical staff. The reason why I mentioned that, I still keep getting emails and requests from some physicians that they haven't heard, what are we doing about these, although this is available everywhere. I mean, uh, at the NGPG website, it's almost in the monthly newsletter, it's at the medical staff, there is plenty of information so if you still have questions, please email me or text me. Otherwise, from the bottom of my heart, I would like to thank 
all of you and as well as the entire staff for doing this awesome job. So, uh, Janine, if you would say a few words I'd about like the to, team. I'd uh, like to thank the CME team uh, for their diligence in, in getting this uh, executed <laughs> for us. I also want to thank our panelists for your expertise, but I'll be remiss if I don't close by asking Dr. Youssef. He was writing a lot of notes on his paper. Do you have a vision more on what you want to do, anything with the community? Like, Do you want to share that hot off the press uh, thought process before we close out today? I cannot close without you sharing your bigger vision with the audience well this is a major issue so we need to have this discussion in different counties we had forums for this kind of thing substance abuse uh, I participated in Gunek County about something similar one thing we would like to do in the next few months depending on the audience interest is to involve uh, the local community law enforcement the court system the school uh, EMS and other physicians like in the front line, like the emergency room, to have some kind of panel with the legislation and all that to go over this topic so that we can keep this thing current, not just when we have requirement. And I'm very interested in what Steve said. Now we have a system CMO. I would like to collaborate with him to create that system central dashboard reporting system to the board to show compliance because uh, asking all my other uh, friends in different health system, uh, I, I didn't see anybody who was doing this organized training for their uh, provider. Certainly nobody was covering the ethics, uh, legal and regulatory panel. So we want to build up on that. So, and I want to thank you also personally for working with this, pulling this was not an easy thing and it's absolute fun working with you. Thank you. Awesome. So we would like to thank everyone that's in the audience and online. So have a great afternoon, everyone.